It was a beautiful, sunny summer day in Dallas, Texas. It was August 6, 2005, and it was the day that I was going to propose to the girl of my dreams. I had plans to take Steph to White Rock Lake Park. It's really the only lake in Dallas, only kind of nature in Dallas for that matter. Dallas is pretty much a big cement city if you've been there. And so we planned to go to White Rock Lake, and I had a whole picnic planned out, and I had a buddy of mine, and he had gotten, gotten to the lake earlier before me, and he had planted this message in an old bottle and put it right by the lake shore there, hidden in the rocks a little bit. I knew just where it would be. And he was in the, in the bushes, kind of, and he was dressed in camo, and he was taking pictures <laughs> just to get everything down. And so as we're there and we're having our picnic dinner, um, and before I propose, this woman, she runs by and she stops. She says, hey, are y'all on that episode of Cheaters? <laughs> and I'm wondering what in the world is going on. She says, there's a guy in the bushes taking pictures of y'all. <laughs> I said, no, no, just, just keep running, you know, <laughs> just, you're, you're ruining things here. And she did. She kept running, and Steph didn't suspect a thing. And a little while later, I got down on a knee, and she said yes. I thought it'd be fun this week just to kind of look back and, and read about some other proposal stories that people have had and, and what they've done and see their stories. I read about one guy who just loved Super Mario Brothers. He was just a Super Mario Brothers fanatic, and so he decided to create his own level for his soon-to-be fiance, and so she had to go through like this Super Mario Brothers world, and at the end, there was a question, question box, and she had to jump into it and hit it with her head, and then the ring was in there. And then after she said yes, he had fireworks go off and everything. I read about another guy, and he had 48 of his friends dress up as carrots. And they're in these elaborate carrot costumes, and and they choreographed this dance that they would do. And so he, he brought his girlfriend, and here are the carrots doing this dance, and she's wondering, what in the world is this? And she's confused. And then at the end of the dance, he asked the question with a 48-carat ring. I read about another guy in New Mexico, and he, um, he decided to go to, he and his girlfriend's, their favorite um, milkshake shop. And so we got milkshakes for him and his, and his girlfriend, and, she, and he thought it would be a good idea to hide the ring in her milkshake. It, it seemed strange, but it got worse because the milkshake was really thick, and she had to eat it with a spoon, and she ended up swallowing the ring. <laughs> One of the most unique and exciting engagement stories really, I think, in all of human history is found in the book of Ruth. And so this morning, we get to see what happens. Go ahead, turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. In the previous scene from last week, if you were with us, you'll remember that the harvest season had ended. And the, the wheat and the barley harvest, it's over. Ruth goes back. She's staying with Naomi. And, you know, it seemed like there was this connection with her and Boaz, but as the harvest ends, we're just left wondering, well, what's going to happen next? 
Is there a future for Ruth and Boaz? Do they love each other the way it seems? Will he marry her? And all these questions are racing through our head. Well, Naomi is not going to waste much time in making sure that there is a future for these two. So go ahead, let's, let's read. We'll begin in Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking." But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Naomi, she had seen Ruth's face every day. Every day when Ruth came home from gleaning in the fields of Boaz, Naomi saw Ruth. She, she listened. She heard as Ruth spoke about her day and what Boaz said to her each day. Ruth would relay these stories to Naomi, I'm sure, day after day. And now that the harvest season is over, Ruth says, hey, or Naomi says to Ruth, hey, I I need to find you a husband. You know, there have been matchmakers, you know, all going way back. And at, at this time, it was not unusual for wedding proposals to be discussed in the mother's chambers. You remember several weeks ago when Naomi sent Orpah and Ruth, where she wanted to send Orpah and Ruth back to her mother's house. She said, go back to your mother's house because that's where weddings were planned. And so here she is with Ruth and she's talking about marriage and she's saying, uh, Naomi is saying to Ruth, hey, I know just the guy. I, I know just the guy. And she takes on this matchmaking role. And I, mean, I almost picture the scene of Naomi sitting Ruth down right in front of her and saying, okay, we need to look at the facts here. I'm not going to be around forever. This is a new land for you, a new place, new culture. You need someone who can protect you, who can provide for you, someone who can teach you what it, what it looks like to live here uh, effectively in, in Israel. And, and I, I can't do that forever. What you really need is you need a husband. And I know just the guy, you know, Boaz, he's interested in you. It's obvious. I mean, he's just been dumping grain in your path every single day. Okay. He's got it for you bad. And then Naomi, she just comes right out and says it. And she says, you know, there's Boaz. He's our relative. He's our kinsman. The Old Testament law says that a close relative could be called to be a kinsman redeemer and to play a special role in the life of an Israelite family under certain circumstances. There were four circumstances in which you could call a close relative to be a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer could be called upon by an Israelite to buy a family member out of slavery. A kinsman redeemer could be called upon to make sure that the murderer of a family member would face justice. A kinsman redeemer could be called upon to buy back family land that had been forfeited. And lastly, a kinsman redeemer could be called upon to carry on the family name by marrying marrying a childless widow. 
In order to be called upon to be a kinsman redeemer, the kinsman redeemer himself had to meet four qualifications. He would have to be related by blood to those who he redeems. He would have to be able to pay the price of redemption. He would have to be willing to redeem and he would have to be free of any kind of legal uh, things that would prevent him from redeeming. He would have to be free legally to redeem. And so Naomi, she knows the situation. And she knows that Boaz is relate, related to Elimelech by blood. She knows that he's a wealthy landowner, that he has the means, that he's able to pay the price of redemption. Naomi knows that Boaz has taken a liking to Ruth. It's, it's obvious that he would be willing to pay the price. And she knows that he is legally free. There, there is nothing uh, that would prevent Boaz from doing this. He meets all of the qualifications. And so Naomi is planning. She's, she's dreaming about wedding bells and a, and a future wedding for her daughter-in-law. You know, just a little while before, Naomi was bitter but now she's dreaming. Hope lets you dream. Hope lets you dream. If it's been a while since you've dreamt about how God is working in your life and how God wants to use you and and what God's plans may be for you, hope frees you to dream. And when, when you know your kinsman redeemer, when you know Jesus, that, that ought to just flood your heart. Because you know a man who became a man just so that he could be related to us. So that he could be human just as we are. When you know Jesus, the perfect kinsman redeemer who's able to pay the price for our redemption. A price that none of us could ever pay. When you know Jesus, the perfect kinsman redeemer who with joy set before him, endured the cross. Willingly he went. He was willing to do it. And when you know Jesus, the perfect kinsman redeemer who is completely free from any curse of sin, any stain of death, he is therefore the perfect kinsman redeemer, the only one, the only one who can free us from our sin and the penalty of that. And when you know him, and when you know that he has redeemed you, and that he's redeemed you with a purpose, and that he has plans for your life, and that he loves you, and that he's called you into this relationship, and that he's adopted you into a family. Well, then hope just begins to flood the heart because you know that he wants to do something in your life, that he's done this on purpose for you with a great plan in mind. And hope floods the heart. It lets you dream. It lets you dream a little bit about what can be and what God might want to do and and where he's taking you. And you can dream about how you can go and encourage someone else about how he showered his grace upon you and now you get to be a dispenser of grace to others. You can dream about your gifts and what purpose it is that, uh, that God has given you those and how he wants to use you to build up and encourage one another. You can dream about what God is doing in your life and how you can be a part of it. Hope comes charging in and it frees you to dream. It frees you to dream. One of the biggest needs of life is is just to know that your eternity is secure. And once you have that ultimate need met, then you're free to dream. Hope lets you do that. I hope you know Jesus this morning and I hope that by knowing him that you're free to dream, that you've got a little time in your schedule each week that you can just pray and dream 
about what the future may be for you and how God may want to use you to impact others. Naomi is dreaming. She's got sweet dreams of of wedding bells. She's dreaming of Boaz marrying Ruth. And as she's dreaming, she's considering the law. And she knows that according to the law at the time, it was actually Ruth's responsibility to propose to Boaz. That at that time, at that time, her condition would not be the same as an unmarried woman. As an unmarried woman, a woman who had never been married before, who was not a widow, then it would have been the man's responsibility to pursue and to propose to Ruth. But this is not the case. Ruth is a widow. And as a widow, it was her right, it was her responsibility to let her intention be known that she would like a kinsman redeemer to redeem her. See, it was Ruth's move. And Ruth may not have known that, but Naomi did. And so Naomi, she's plotting and and she says to Ruth, "You, you know, the harvest season is over now. And I don't know how many more opportunities you're going to have with Boaz. You need to strike while the iron's hot. I mean, he's got it for you. He he desires you. You need to go and you need to let your intentions be known. You, You need to tell him that you want him to redeem you. And Ruth, you know, a Moabite, a foreigner, an immigrant, she, she may not have been all familiar with these laws and customs, the way of doing things. It might have been different for her. And I imagine that as Naomi says this, that Ruth just says, okay, well then tell me what I should do. Can you just tell me what to do? Do you have some kind of plan? And Naomi, the matchmaker, says, oh, I'm so glad you asked. I've been working on one. See, I've been keeping tabs on Boaz and I've got my spies, you know, they keep an eye out for me. And and I hear that he's going to be at the threshing floor tonight, winnowing some barley. So Boaz, he was going to be hard at work. The threshing floor, back in those days, the threshing floor would be this big area up on a ridge and they they would clear it out. And the workers would come, they'd, they'd clear out the, the, the area. It would be on a high point so that the wind would blow, that there would be a breeze in the evening that, that would blow by this area. And after they had cleared it out and they had raked it and cleaned it real good, they would put rocks on the perimeter to try to keep the area as clean as possible. And they would sprinkle the ground with water to try to, to, try to harden it up just a little bit. The grain would be brought in by donkeys or oxen or camels or some kind of animal or perhaps workers, but usually animals. And the animals, they would be harnessed to one another shoulder to shoulder and they would trample over the grain. And as they trampled over the grain, it would separate the husks from the kernels. And so then you would do the winnowing work. You'd come in with a pitchfork and you'd just throw it up into the air. And the breeze, the evening breeze, would, would blow the husks and the chaff away. And the grain, which is heavier, would just fall to the ground. And when it was winnowing season, everyone would work late into the night. It would be a, it would be a hard day's work, a long day's work. And at the end of it, there would be a time of celebration because the harvest had come in. And you can imagine, as we entered this book, the book of Ruth, and we saw that there was a famine in the land, that it may have been a while. Perhaps this was the first harvest since the famine. We don't know, but they were likely really celebrating because they had endured a famine shortly before, and now here's the harvest season. And so, so Naomi knew that there were, this was going to be a time of great rejoicing anyway, and at this occasion, probably 
especially uh, just a thankful time, a, a joyful time. And Naomi, she relates this to Ruth because Naomi knows that Boaz, he's going to be working really hard and then he's going to be rejoicing. He's going to be in a really good mood. And she says, okay, Ruth, here's the plan. First, you need to wash yourself, okay? And, and this term in the Hebrew, that, that means like the whole treatment, all right? And she's saying, hey, you got you to gotta get all the fancy lotions and soaps, you know, use it all. Get that manicure and pedicure. Make, make sure that everything's really good, you know, really look your best. Then you need to anoint yourself. Put on, put on that best perfume, you know, whatever it is. You know that one that you wear, what, what is it, Midnight in Moab? Yeah, you need to put that on. That's, that's going to smell really good. He'll like that. It says you need to put on your best clothes. That one cloak that you have, you know, you look just ravishing in that. You need to put that on. And, and you're going to look just like a princess. I know it'll be late. I know it'll be dark, you know, but Boaz might call for a lantern. And, and you want to look your best if he sees you. And so you got to be ready. And she says, the best time will be after all the festivities have ended. After he's had everything he wants to eat and drink, and he goes down, wait until the workers have gone to sleep for the night, and wait until Boaz is asleep. You don't want to interrupt things. You don't want to make a scene. This is the plan you need to follow. And Ruth responds, and she says, that's great advice. All that you have said, I will do. Ruth models an important point here, and it's that we need to humbly receive counsel from others. Humbly receive counsel from others. See, none of us have that all figured out. None of us, none of us can live this life perfect. God, God has created us to need each other. That, that I, I can't do it by myself and you can't do it by yourself. That we need one another. God has created us that way. And when you find someone who has faithfully walked with God, who, who's been in your shoes before you, and, and he knows the way around the block a little bit, or she knows a little bit more than you do, and she's a faithful example of what it looks like to be a godly man or a godly woman, then we need to listen to these people, hear what they have to say. When I, when I first moved to Washington, I had the great privilege, one of the first people I met um, was a longtime youth pastor in the area. He'd many, many years of faithful youth ministry in the Pacific Northwest. His name's Tom Horton. And Tom, he just discipled many students, and many of these students have gone on to just raise godly families. Many of these students have gone on to have career of full-time uh, Christian ministry. And so as Tom, and I got to know Tom, and he just spoke to me about what he did and how he discipled students and how he trained his leaders and how he ran youth group and what he did on retreats to maximize those, to make sure that students came back and how he empowered students to lead and things like this. I, I just, I mean, I wanted to soak it all in. I wanted to listen to everything that Tom said. And most everything Tom said, I was taking notes on and trying to implement as best I could in the youth group that I was leading at the time. And because I knew that he had he'd walked faithfully with God for so many years and God had blessed his ministry immensely. Whenever I'd go uh, anywhere with Tom and Tom was speaking, there would be someone inevitably in the crowd who just knew who he was. 
and we'd come up. I mean, we'd be in Montana, and someone would come up, oh, Tom Horton, great to see you. It was incredible just the amount of lives that this man touched. And so he continues just to be a blessing to me and to my life and to my ministry. It's good to have people in your life who you know they're going to give you sound advice. People who've walked faithfully with God, who aren't going to give you advice just on what they think or what they think you ought to do, but people who you know will take you to Scripture and say, here's why I believe what I believe. Here's why you should do this, because God says, not just me, this is how God says we need to live and structure our lives. And when you know people like that, it's good to just come around them and say, hey, can we talk? You know, I've got some questions. I'd love to run by you and just hear what you have to say about this and how you would think through and how you thought through this situation in your life. See, we all need to receive humbly counsel from others who've gone before us, who've been faithful and have lives that we can look at and say, I, I want to live a life like that. I want to have the type of impact that they had. This is Ruth. And she knows, okay, Naomi, she's been around the block a little bit more than, than Ruth has. She knows the customs better than Ruth does. And no, her faith wasn't perfect. But there was still something about Naomi that Ruth looked at and respected. And said, you know, she's, she's not perfect, but she's modeling something good. And she, she can help me grow. Ruth receives the counsel from Naomi. And so let's see what happens next. Ruth 3 6 through 10. It says, So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother in law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Now some suggest here that Naomi's advice and Ruth's actions are a little bit racy, that, that perhaps Naomi is telling Ruth to proposition Boaz or try to seduce him into some kind of improper relationship, you know, going there late at night when he's asleep and uncovering his legs and laying there next to him. And, and it might read that way to some, but nothing could be further from the truth. You see, Boaz, he's a godly man. He's not going to respond to some kind of improper seduction here. This is not the way to capture his heart. And in just a few verses later, actually verse 11, Boaz is going to praise Ruth for her moral character. He's going to say, you are a woman of excellence. The whole town knows of your virtue. He's not going to be talking about how virtuous she is and how excellent she is and her reputation and all that. If he thinks she's doing something improper here. See, that, this is not what the text is getting at at all. What's more is the Mishnah, um, a commentary on Jewish law and customs, it said that, that a Jewish man would not be allowed to be a kinsman redeemer if he'd had an improper relationship with the woman before he redeemed her. 
And this law was put in place to protect a vulnerable woman so that she could not be taken advantage of in, in, in some way and then be forced into a relationship that she didn't want. And if he failed that, I mean, if, if he would to have touched her in an improper way before this, then he would lose the right to be her kinsman redeemer. He would no longer be able to redeem her or the property belonging to her former husband. So Ruth is not making some kind of seductive proposition here at all. She's uncovering his legs, probably because she knows that there's going to be a gentle breeze that evening, and this is just a nice, gentle way to wake him up that he'll be cold and that he's going to look around and say, oh, my feet are cold. What's, what's going on? And it happens, right? You look at the text. The clock struck midnight, but this fairy tale is not about to end. It's only just beginning, really. And Boaz, he's startled and he's shivering. His feet are cold and he bends down to probably put the blanket back over his legs, over his feet, and he sees a woman lying there. He might have thought for a moment that thieves were coming to try to steal his crops or something. You know, his hair is all messed up. He's disheveled. He's just woken up in the middle of a night's sleep. And Ruth leans in and says, it's me. It's, it's Ruth, your maid. She says, will you, will you spread your wings over me? Ruth is not asking for Boaz's blanket here because it's cold outside. You remember when they first met and what Boaz said to Ruth? You remember that? He said, may the Lord repay you for all you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See the word wings there in chapter two and here in chapter three, it's the same word. Ruth is using the same word this time Ruth is saying to Boaz, Boaz, will you become the answer to your own prayer? This is the prayer that you prayed for me. I'm now inviting you to be the answer of the prayer that you prayed. Do you remember that prayer that you prayed on my behalf that God would spread his wings and protect me and provide for me? Would you like to become the answer to that prayer? Would you spread your wings over me? Would you allow God to use you to cover me, to protect me, to provide for me? Would you cover me with your care, Boaz? Would you love me, Boaz? Will you marry me? So there's a principle here, and it's this. It's to act with gentle boldness. Act with gentle boldness. It is the custom of the day for the woman to approach the man if she's a widow and desiring a kinsman redeemer. But it is bold still for Ruth to come up and to make this request of Boaz. It's bold for her to, to come to this wealthy landowner, a man who has so much, and her being this foreign immigrant who has nothing, and to come to him and to say, hey, will you be the kinsman redeemer for me? Will you fulfill that role? Will you take on that responsibility? It is a bold request. But notice how she does it. She approaches him in private. Everyone else is sleeping. See, see there's a method here. And I think part of the wisdom that Naomi is giving to Ruth is you don't want to pressure him. 
You don't want to put him on the spot in front of all of his workers and you don't want to embarrass him. You don't want to force him into a decision. But just gently and boldly go and make your request. Let him know your heart, your intentions, what you would like, but do it in a respectful, gentle way. Maybe you're here and you're saying, well, you know, I'm just not that bold. You know, I'm just not that bold of a person. I'm, I'm a little more mild-mannered. Boldness just doesn't describe me, and I don't know that I, I could act with boldness. If you know Jesus, he has given you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is a spirit of boldness. See, the prayer that you need to pray is not so much, God, give me boldness, but God, help me to live a life empowered by your Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit empowers you to live in a bold way. He just does. That's his nature. That's who he is. And so help me to live a life empowered by your spirit, the spirit that you have given me. And when you do that, he, he brings boldness where we're afraid. He brings boldness where we want to shrink back. He brings boldness when we just want to look away and let someone else deal with it. He gives that boldness. And at the, at the same time, he also is a spirit of gentleness. That he's, he's gentle, that he comes across in a respectful way. He's not, not rough. He's not, he's not demanding in a, in a my way or the highway type of attitude. No, he's, he's gentle. He gives us the boldness to share the gospel with the world, and he in, empowers us to do it in a gentle, respectful way with people whose lifestyles may be offensive to us, who, who sin in ways that we look at and we say, I, I, I do not agree with that. But instead of just holding up what I do not agree with, he gives us the, the boldness and the gentleness to go and to meet their number one need. And that's the need of a relationship with Jesus. He gives us the gentleness to be kind and the boldness to go and do. We're, we aren't argumentative in the way we share the gospel. We're winsome. And Ruth proposes to Boaz in the most winsome way. She she does it in a way when everyone else is is sleeping, not to put any pressure on him. And she reminds him of a prayer that he had previously prayed for her. She takes him right back to that first date, you know. Says, "I, I remember when you prayed that prayer for me. Maybe she wrote it down or something. I I memorized it in my mind. Maybe she just repeated that prayer over and over and over again because it meant so much that here's a man, a a man of esteem, a man of character, a man who can provide, and this would be his prayer for her. And so she knows this prayer. She's memorized this prayer, and now she's inviting him. Will you be the answer to your own prayer? Will you marry me? And he answers right back, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. In the Hebrew, it's just one word. It's yeah. Okay. (laughs) Not really. But (laughs) the integrity of Boaz is still on display here, right? Because he, he says, he goes right back to God. This is just characteristic of Boaz. It, someone should write a book on Boaz. I mean, this, this guy is an incredible man of faith. In, in the dark days of the judges, when everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, when people have forgotten about God and what God had done for Israel, here's Boaz who remembers. And here's Boaz who, when he first meets Ruth, he's praying a prayer for Ruth. He's talking about God and his faithfulness to Ruth. 
When he greets his employees, he's talking about who God is and his faithfulness and that he would bless them. And here he is again, the most exciting news of his life, just about a future wife. And he again points back to God and just praises God for who he is and for Ruth and for who she is. The integrity of Boaz is still on display and he answers with just immediate praise to God. And he praises God for Ruth. Do you take the time, if you're married, to praise God for your spouse? Do you take the time just to pray for your spouse and thank the Lord that he has given her or him to you? Do you take the time, maybe you're not married, just to praise God for your parents? It was so cool this morning to hear Carrie's testimony and how she looked to godly parents who helped raise her and train her to serve the Lord and then a godly church. Do you take the time to praise God for your parents? for your kids, for grandparents, for those in your family, for your church, that, uh, that God has been so good to us here and so good in our lives. And it's just grace upon grace that we're adopted into this family. Boaz does. He praises God immediately. He knows this is a remarkable woman, a woman of excellence. And as a man of integrity, he's not going to touch this woman until they are legally married He values her. He values her integrity so much that we'll see it next week, but he has this plan. He doesn't want to draw any suspicion to her. He wants to make sure that they're able to live lives that that can remain above reproach. And so he tells her to leave early in the morning so that no one will see her. As you think about perhaps your engagement story and what it was like when you proposed or you were proposed to or or maybe as you dream of what that day may look like if, if you're not married. I imagine that it's quite different from the story of Ruth and, and Boaz and, and what they share. But the story of what happened here, when, when that clock struck midnight and Ruth proposed to Boaz, it almost makes you wonder if the narrator could just end the story right here and just write, and they lived happily ever after. But if you've watched any fairy tales, you know that there's always a little bit more drama than that, right? And there's going to be. There's going to be more drama that enters this story. We'll see it next week. But this week, as we live this week, I hope you live lives that um, are characterized by hope. A hope that lets you dream. That you are able to humbly receive counsel from others. Counsel from people who are faithful to the word, who've who've maybe gone before you, have a little bit more experience, and who will give you counsel straight from God's word. I pray that you'll be able to act with a gentle boldness because you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to represent him well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful engagement story of Ruth and Boaz. We thank you for their integrity, for their love for you, for their love for one another and for the lessons that we learn from it. God, help us to live lives empowered by your Holy Spirit. Because that gives us hope. It gives us the freedom to dream, to dream about how you would choose to use us, how you would choose to use this church for your glory. God, thank you for for people who are faithful to your word, who love you and who love others. And God, help us to to listen well when, when they bring counsel, to humbly receive that counsel so that we can 
be better disciples as a result of their faithfulness. And God, this week, help us to act with a gentle boldness. Give us eyes to see people in our community who need you more than they need their next breath. God, help us to share your gospel in a winsome, loving way, gently and boldly with those we interact with. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.